Let's go ahead and invite you to turn within your copy of God's Word to John chapter 3. It's going to be a very famous passage tonight, but we'll just be in uh, verses 1 through 15 of John chapter 3. Uh, so, narrative about Nicodemus uh, meeting Jesus by night. And um, as you're turning there, I just have a brief uh, kind of story for you. See, about 15 years ago now, um, I think it was back in 2008 specifically, had a simple but very meaningful uh, dream. <laughs> and uh, all of us good Presbyterians get a little on edge whenever you hear that, like, oh boy, where's this going? <laughs> but genuinely, it was a very meaningful dream to me that has stuck with me all these years later. And it was one I believe that God truly did give to me in order to spur me on in terms of planting a church downtown here in Lynchburg. See, in this dream, again 15 years ago, I was walking around a downtown environment that looked eerily similar to downtown Lynchburg, just at the very least, with historic brick buildings all around, just towering over me from left to right. And in this short but simple dream, I remember feeling a very sense of calmness and even tranquility as I was walking along what was probably Main Street, if I understand correctly, if I'm reading this correctly. But this calmness and this tranquility was the kind of peace that you feel when everything in your life just seems to be fitting together. It was just a very like calming kind of peace, like a nurturing kind of peace. In my dream, I was being drawn specifically, I just remember walking a little bit, toward this particular place, toward this old historic building. And it was actually a church, of all places. And my heart was just being drawn to it. See, this building, this thing that was being used to gather people together, hosted the very people of God, just worshiping Him in the midst of this small yet historic downtown place. And I remember very vividly, too, that people were gathered for prayer on my left and my right as I was walking down in the pews and everything, right? And they were just simply preparing their hearts for worship and quietness. It was like a quiet joy. I remember all this very vividly. Oh, aside from just a, a dream, you know, it was so pleasant, though. Back in 2008, specifically, God was in that same season of life, ironically enough, using um, that time in my life to make clearer and clearer and clearer, even using a dream like that, to make it known to me, without a shadow of a doubt, that he had placed a call in my life to plant churches, which I've done ever since that point, from 2010 onward. And in this earnest desire of my heart ever since 2008, especially since I first had that idea of, wow, there's just something beautiful and so pleasing about this idea of church planting downtown, even Lynchburg one day, maybe, if God would have me. This desire, though, has been really, first and foremost, to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth, as we were just praying, as it already is being done in heaven. Friends like you, I, and like we were just praying, I love this city. I see it's brokenness, and yet I still love it. And God, I believe, loves this city far more than we could even imagine. He loves the people we were just praying for, our friends, our neighbors, our roommates, the ones who are lost, the ones who have just recently come to know Jesus, ones who do not yet know him. And many of us, including myself, like I mentioned earlier, have even wept over these same people. We've brought them before the very throne of grace because we love them. And this desire to, to be a part of church planting, which all of us here are doing by being here right now even, 
is just such a holy thing. It's something that's very unique. Not everybody, not every Christian even wants to do this kind of thing, and yet here we are. We're actually doing it. Even those who are feeling sick and couldn't make it tonight have done it for the last few months as we've banded together the last three months now. And we're seeing God bless it over and over and over again. At the same time, I can't help but think of the context here in downtown Lynchburg. See, this is, you know, in many ways, one of the buckles of the Bible Belt, so to speak. Or maybe even the main one. (laughs) Aside from Greenville, perhaps, or Birmingham, right? But over the past 21 years of living here, since 2003, I've seen very clearly a growing opposition more and more and more, especially in this part of the city of Lynchburg, downtown and beyond, but especially here, a growing opposition toward Christ, and especially towards Christ's church. Lots of people, I know we've all talked about this, but lots of people have been hurt by churches, including myself. We've experienced spiritual abuses. People have been hurt and just so, um, just made little of. And a lot of times people who have been through those things move to cities. They often move to downtown parts of cities, especially because they want to find respite and and soul care almost within them as they just isolate from the world around them, as they move as far away as they can from what was known in hopes that the unknown would be some kind of savior to them. And so we've seen that happen in downtown Lynchburg. Most of the people that live here are new neighbors who are largely transplants from other cities and even other states, several states away even. And a lot of them even are locals, people who grew up in Lynchburg, like Laura and myself even, the last 20 years, or both of us, 21 years now. And yet oftentimes, again, the very people that moved down here, even the ones who grew up in churches, are the very ones who've been hurt by the church the most. And they just want nothing to do with it. Whether it be liberty, as much as we love liberty, it's often that. Or it's the churches that all of us know by name, the big ones, the small ones alike. And a lot of times, those people who are hurt move right here to get away from Christianity. Hence my heart for downtown Lynchburg. See, in the midst of all the hurt, I believe God has placed us here, downtown Presbyterian, right here with a very clear purpose. And it's really our, our mission statement. We, uh, you know, a lot of us know it, but it's this. It's that we desire, we're even seeking to do this work. We desire, though, to advance the kingdom of Christ here in downtown Lynchburg by proclaiming the gospel and demonstrating God's love. Both and. <laughs> Word and deed. <laughs> the gospel and by showing his love to the down and out, the deconstructed, the disenfranchised. So our passage tonight from John 3 reflects the same exact heart of Christ, though. Not just for the city, but for the lost as a whole. And it proclaims to us here in John 3 that salvation is from above. It's not from down here. It is rather from above. And that though there is real opposition to the gospel of God's grace in Christ, men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity and language are nevertheless to be given the free offer of the gospel in as much as God would use each one of us to do so. And so that said, our main idea for this evening is this. as in your bulletins as well. But our main idea is that the message, our message, to our neighbors here in downtown Lynchburg is unfailing and it is unchanging. And it's simply this. The message is this. 
look to Christ and so be saved from the wrath that is to come. Look to Christ and so be saved. So, let's go ahead and read through our passage as we uh, dive into this together. This is John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is the gospel. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, this is the very word of God, holy, inspired, inerrant, and given to us in love. Let's go ahead and pray one more time. Lord God, as we come now to the very preaching of your holy word, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the very grace that is afforded to us in this, your word. You allow us, O oh God, to see you and to know you and to love you all the more because of the very work that you are doing in this time. We thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for the gift of it being opened before us and proclaimed over us. And so would you use me, O Lord, as your vessel, even just simply a vessel of mercy, to convey the glories of your gospel for our good and for your glory, O God, in our midst. So we praise in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, friends, the gospel of Christ truly is, as Romans 1.16 tells us, the very power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It alone brings men and women out of bondage, in sin even, those who are in darkness, out of it, and into the very light of God's holiness, and into redeemed communion with him. But as we proclaim the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, we know it. We will face opposition. 
for the whole being of man, body, soul, mind, strength, heart, all of us as beings are not just broken by the fall, but all of us is truly desperately wicked and unable to take glory and refuge in Christ apart from the Holy Spirit's divine work of bringing the spiritually dead to life and restoring our fellowship and our relationship with God as our creator, as he applies this very work of redemption to us. The redemption that was in Christ afforded to us by the shedding of his own blood. In the Gospel of John, which we've been going through the past uh, few months now, we've already seen that the Pharisees strongly opposed the very work of Christ. See, earlier in John chapter 1, we saw that they had opposed the very work of God through John the Baptizer, who was ordained by God to prepare the people's hearts to repent of their sin and receive Christ as Lord. And Nicodemus here is no different in John chapter 3. He was one of them. He was one of the Pharisees. In fact, he was one of the major players within the Pharisees, from what we understand. What does our text say? Our text tells us this about Nicodemus. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Now from a simple description, we learn three stark things about Nicodemus right there. At first we learn that he was part of the company of the Pharisees. He was one of them. So we might be asking, okay, well, who, who are the Pharisees exactly, right? I mean, we all probably know, but really, who were they? Well, the Pharisees really were a sect of the religious order in that day who were primarily not priests, not really prophets of any kind. They were really theologians. They were people who talked about God all day long, who, who postured before other people around them, whose intellect was basically their God. They were theologians. False and bad theologians at that. But time and time again, we will see in the gospel account that these same Pharisees didn't teach the scriptures faithfully. Again, they were bad theologians. See, they added to the very word of God, directly violating the first four of the Ten Commandments, all relating to God himself. And they burdened the very people of God with loads that no man could carry out. And so in effect, they forsake God's loving kindness toward his own people, Israel. The very love that God had given them through the commandments of the fifth through the tenth commandments. And so they were lawbreakers through and through, even though they tried to be the ones who were giving the law to the people, ironically enough. But second, we learned this about Nicodemus. He wasn't just a Pharisee, but we also learned that he was, in fact, a ruler or a governor quite literally, according to the Greek text, a governor of some form over the people. Now the laws then and the impositions that he and the other Pharisees put in place were not necessarily from God, but most of the people in that day still decided to believe them regardless. They must have been educated in some way concerning the scriptures, but not enough to understand truth from error. And so a lot of them gave way to the teachings of the Pharisees. So again, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews, as our text says. But finally, we see that Nicodemus was a man who was quite literally living in the darkness of sin. He was a sinner. He was suppressing God's truth in his own unrighteousness. 
How do we know that? We know it because his words alone don't just give it away. <laughs> because of his inability to understand the gospel as Jesus gave it to him later on in our passage. But we know it very clearly because Nicodemus came to Jesus not by daylight, but by night. Now, at first we might be thinking, okay, well, there's probably some reason he came to Jesus by night, and there in fact is. <laughs> see, through all of John's writings, we will see, and we have already seen, even especially in John 1, this common motif, this theme, in other words, of light versus darkness. Light being good and holy and indicating something about God. But darkness always referring to sin and blindness and ignorance and even rebellion against God. See, in John 1, we read earlier, this is a few months ago now, that Jesus was the true light. The light that gives light to everyone. And we saw even that John the baptizer, this is all in John chapter 1, had come to bear witness about the light of Christ. And we also realize in John 1 that we come to know the true light, Christ Jesus himself, because Jesus, as the light, shines into the darkness of our own lives. He shines into the ignorance and the rebellion of our own hearts and declares his truth over us. And John 1 tells us that the darkness has not, and indeed it cannot, overcome the very light of Christ. And so the fact that the Gospel writer, John, here in John chapter 3, conveys to us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night is not just happenstance. It's not just poetic. And it's not just poetry, though indeed it is poetic by nature. Rather, it's indicative that Nicodemus, along with the very Pharisees and the legalistic anti-Christian belief system that they held to, all directly opposed the light very light of Christ. In other words, these Pharisees were living in the darkness. And so it's not uh, just happenstance that Nicodemus comes to Jesus out of that same poetic darkness to then talk with Jesus. For it's the same darkness that envelops each and every single heart, every soul within our own town of Lynchburg that has not yet submitted to King Jesus. Do you believe that? See, the nature of sin is that it suppresses God's truth, truth that is evident about nature, truth about manhood and womanhood, truth about morality, truth about ethics, or about society, or government, or power, or glory, or even the grandeur of God. Sin suppresses all of these truths, what we call natural revelation. Sin just pushes it down, as Romans 1 tells us. And so this darkness, sin by name, is not just symbolic of ignorance, just ignorance as bliss, so to speak. Rather, this sin causes men to stumble into all kinds of ill behavior and falsities and false worship. And it is directly resistant to the very holiness of our Creator and of our Redeemer himself. Now, it's from this same place of spiritual darkness and rebellion then that Nicodemus said to Jesus, here's his first words even, Rabbi, we, meaning me and the other Pharisees, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, 
I can imagine that for many of us who are familiar with this passage, that at first his words might sound a little sincere. Like maybe, you know, Rich, are you just reading it a little, you know, uh, negatively? Is that really how he sounded? I, I believe so. See, oftentimes, I know, at least for me, I often used to give Nicodemus the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he just was embarrassed. Maybe he just didn't want to go to Jesus by daylight because either Pharisees might find out that he was talking to Jesus. You know, maybe he meant well, right? I mean, has anybody else even thought that too? I know I have. In fact, I was taught to believe that that was true about Nicodemus. But I don't think it's the right interpretation. And thankfully, I stand corrected, even as I was reading through the passage more closely even this past week, I realized that though it may sound sincere, it only may sound sincere apart from the rest of the context. When we actually read the rest of it, it's very obvious that he was trying to actually put Jesus into a box of sorts. So we might have to ask ourselves some diagnostic questions though to get this. We might ask ourselves things like, you know, was Nicodemus really confessing Christ as Lord here? Was he saying, Jesus, we, the Pharisees, we believe that you are the Son of God, come from the Father full of grace and truth? Was he perhaps, again, like I said earlier, defying the other beliefs of the Pharisees and simply coming to inquire about real faith in Christ? No, he wasn't. <laughs> Rather, he came, as the text says, actually representing the Pharisees. He was one of them. He came representing the Pharisees. And he came again, as the text says, as a ruler, a governor, to actually put things in order. And he came from a place, by night, even literally speaking, but from a place of spiritual darkness, figurative darkness even, not to express faith in Christ, but rather to put Christ in his supposed place. That's the nature of sin. See, listen to the subtext as we go on in this passage. There is, in many of Nicodemus' words, a, a hint of flattery, perhaps even a bit of reaching out to Jesus, so it seems, oh, we, we know this about you, we know this about you. But it really is a power play. And if you've ever been hurt by somebody, especially someone who's gaslighted you or hurt you, especially behind the scenes, you know this kind of language. You've probably heard it yourself before. This is purely a power play, a power dynamic, as a lot of psychologists will call it. This was a classic political move, essentially, to basically exert, or at least try to exert, authority over Jesus and assume that he could be controlled by the same men who had gained power and governance over the rest of the people. They basically saw Jesus acting out of line. They said, hey, let's go ahead and pull you back in. That's what Nicodemus was doing by night in the darkness. Again, it was a political move. It was a power play. The light of light cannot be controlled or contained or directed by the darkness. See, where Nicodemus tried to flatter Jesus by saying, Oh, we know that you are an earthly teacher come from God. Jesus turned the script over and around on him. And Jesus answered him. What was Jesus' answer? It says this. He said this. Truly, truly, in the Greek, amen, 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 amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very loaded statement, to say the very least. 
See, first of all, where Nicodemus had tried to control the narrative concerning the gospel and Jesus and the witness of Jesus himself, like his baptism earlier and all that he had already done and cleansing the temple and, and even turning water into wine in John 2, Jesus now was putting Nicodemus, ironically enough, in his rightful place by declaring absolute authority over him and over the whole of creation. Truly, truly, I say to you. See, whereas the prophets of old, the Old Testament once said, thus says the Lord, dot, 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 thus ends the word of the Lord. Jesus expressed his dominion and supreme authority over all things by saying, I, in essence, I, the Lord, say to you. This is his way of saying, thus says the Lord under the new covenant, I say to you. See, it is at the very name of Jesus that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, to the very glory of God the Father. And as our Westminster Confession puts it, Jesus is so very equal to the Father and the Spirit, the whole Trinity, in matters of power and in glory. Jesus couldn't be stifled or put into a box like a Nicodemus and the Pharisees wanted him to be. Rather, Nicodemus's failed attempt to lord over Jesus was silenced in the exact same way that Nicodemus tried doing to him. Jesus turned it on his head. <laughs> but what else did Jesus then say to Nicodemus? He said this, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, honestly, that word in the ESV is, and I think it's been a little confusing for a long time, that phrase, born again, right? It really, honestly, is more accurately translated, not as born again, but rather as born from above. That's the more literal translation. Born from above, just as the ESV transla translates the exact same two words in the Greek in verse 31, when it says born from above. It comes from the Greek words, genethe anothen. Genethe anothen which if it helps, is the same word we get generation from, or regeneration, right? Genethen anothen. Literally, to be born or generated, so to speak, from above. See, Jesus was speaking of the heavenly reality that no one can claim that God is their father and that they belong to the very kingdom of grace unless they are indeed children of the father and heirs of this same grace that he's given to them as king. But there's a beauty in Christ's articulation of his truth. See, he used this earthly image of being born to convey the heavenly reality that he was proclaiming, the gospel even, that he was proclaiming to Nicodemus of all people. But even this, even this earthly picture of being born, Nicodemus couldn't understand. This is why he then asked Jesus, not so rhetorically, but I think maybe a little sarcastically, well, how can a man be born again? So he didn't understand. Born from above, born again? How, how do you do that? How can someone go back into his mother's womb? Is basically what he was saying. He was mocking Jesus. Whereas Jesus was referring to the covenantal promise of new life in him, given all the way back, 
all throughout the Old Testament, in places like Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36 as well, all referring to God renewing and reviving and giving a new heart of flesh to his people. That's what Jesus was talking about. Nicodemus did not truly understand this promise of life, this new heart, this new birth from above on the basis of grace. See, Nicodemus Nicodemus couldn't understand heavenly things, nor could he understand the earthly mysteries that signify such heavenly things. This, unfortunately, is the very plight of unbelief. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 tells us later on in the Word that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, in other words, the heavenly things, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But friends, lest we think too highly of ourselves, we too, as Ephesians 2 says, were once those who were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, just like Nicodemus, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But hear the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, as those who believe this message of grace in Christ, we are given this glorious and joyful duty then of sharing this same message, the gospel, with every single person as much as God would allow us around us. See, as we love our neighbors here in downtown Lynchburg, as we love our city together, we will, and I know a lot of us already have even, faced opposition, of course, just as Jesus did. People stop listening. They don't understand. They might even ridicule you or defame you because of the gospel. But just as Jesus provided the offer of the gospel to Nicodemus, the very one who came to literally persecute him and make fun of him, even by night, we too must continue to offer the gospel to everyone regardless of how they may or may not treat us. Because we are to freely and truly and really love their soul. They're made in the image of God. How can we not love them and go after them? See, in our evangelism then, as in the case of Jesus and Nicodemus, this message of the gospel of grace, even gospel message grace for sinners, needs to go forth in the very power of Christ by the Holy Spirit with both truth and grace, as Jesus exemplified for us even here in John 3. See, Jesus knew that the the Pharisees and even Nicodemus here by name were directly opposing him, and yet he corrected them all, each one of them accordingly so. I was talking with Laura and a couple others earlier, Brett from Rivermont and a couple others as well, about this interesting note in the Greek. See, the you here in verse 7 and elsewhere, verse 11 and that kind of thing, 
the you from this point forward is not just you singular, you Nicodemus. It's actually in the plural every time from this point going forward. In other words, Jesus wasn't just correcting Nicodemus, his bad theology. He was actually saying, look, you're opposing me. And it's not just you, it's actually all the Pharisees. And he started to actually answer all of the Pharisees. Jesus said in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, that's plural, you must be born again. Meaning all of you, even you Pharisees, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you, again, plural, all plural here, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And starting in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we, plural, we, speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, plural, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you, plural, earthly things, and you, same, do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Again, we can't see it in our English language, but in the Greek, every single one of these yous is plural. It's referring to all of the gang of Pharisees that were coming up against Jesus. In other words, Jesus wasn't just correcting Nicodemus' bad theology, his understanding of God and salvation and all these things. He was correcting all of them all at once. This is also why Jesus speaks in the third person of himself. Because he's speaking with the very authority of the whole triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit alike. This was the very testimony, in other words, of the triune God, pronouncing the gospel of grace to the you-all, or the all-y'alls, if you will, (laughs) of the Pharisees. The very God of Israel, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was correcting, lovingly, but truthfully, correcting the false teachers of Israel. There's a very sweet application for each one of us in this. See, as you have shared the gospel with your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors, your co-workers. The list goes on in the past. Have you ever felt that you were speaking to them as if you were alone? And maybe even outnumbered. Like it's all of them against just me. Maybe you felt like you were speaking into the void. Like, I can't change their minds. I can't do anything about this. Or worse, have you felt as though you had absolutely no one there with you? who believe the same thing, that Christ is indeed Lord. Almost like, who am I alone to even declare such marvelous things? Why do I feel so alone in believing this? Well, friends, in the places where we work and eat and recreate and live, it is so easy for us to feel alone as Christians. But there's a gospel truth here for us. See, the Lord of hosts, the very one we were singing about, Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, is with us, behind us, for us, with us, as we freely offer the good news of salvation in Christ to those that we love so dearly. We do not share it by our own power. It's not just us. (laughs) Rather, we share it by the very power of Almighty God behind us. He is the one who saves. Salvation is of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
He is the Lord over all, and his message, his gospel is worth declaring even into the darkness of this world all around us. For it is alone the message of eternal hope and life and healing in Christ to a lost and broken and dying world. This is why Jesus, in our last couple of verses, alluded to Numbers chapter 21 when he said this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, this is the gospel message that we declare. That salvation from deserved wrath against sin and eternal um, life. Sorry, let me rephrase that. There is salvation, rather, from this deserved wrath. And there is eternal life and healing only found in Christ. See, as the Israelites had sinned against God in the book of Numbers way back in the day, as they had made fools of themselves before the watching nations all around them while they were still wandering in the wilderness, God afflicted them with pain and suffering so as to turn their hearts back to him See, the Lord, in his kindness, desiring repentance from them, actually sent fiery serpents out amongst the people because they had hardened their hearts against God and they were talking against him and complaining and even sinning against him and refusing to worship him properly. But as those same fiery serpents bit the people and many of them began to die and die and die, the remaining people who were still alive began to cry out to God, saying, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, meaning Moses. So Moses prayed to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And then as Moses prayed for the people on their behalf, the Lord in his kindness answered and provided a way of escape from otherwise certain death. And it's interesting what he told Moses to do. So he commanded Moses to make a fiery serpent, a different kind though, out of bronze. Not an actual serpent, but rather one forged by fire. And to then lift it up upon a pole for the people to look at and be miraculously healed by God's power. For God said, everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Herein lies the gospel. See, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his only begotten son on such a rescue mission. As Philippians 2 tells us, the heavenly king humbled himself and took upon himself the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And in Christ's humility, all for our sake, all for the sake of us, his chosen, his forever loved people, he willfully submitted his life the purpose of atoning death in our place. So like those Israelites in Numbers chapter 21 that Jesus was referring to at the very end of John 3, 14, and 15. We ourselves have been bitten, so to speak, by the fiery sting of death. And apart from God's rescue mission, Ours was a fiery pit of a destination. 
But just as Moses fashioned together a bronze serpent out of the fire and lifted it high upon the pole for all of Israel to look at and so be saved from certain death, Jesus bore our sins in full, taking all of our guilt upon his own shoulders and by becoming a curse for us. We know that he was buried in the tomb, but on the third day he rose again from the dead for our eternal life and for our justification before God Almighty. And each one of us who look upon this Christ in faith will be saved from otherwise certain and eternal death and destruction. Friends, this is the same free offer of the gospel that we have believed God's own timing, and the same free offer of the gospel that we lovingly extend and proclaim to our friends and our neighbors here in downtown Lynchburg and beyond. For there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. And so as we close tonight, our mission here at downtown Presbyterian is to proclaim this unchanging and this unfailing gospel to all, all people, as God so moves us and leads us by his Holy Spirit. This gospel is purposed then to be offered freely to everyone without reservation and without exception. And for those who do receive it, salvation from sin and wrath is not just afforded, it's been accomplished. But for those who do not receive it, judgment against their sin is confirmed. See, as we grow as a church, though we're small right now, of course, my challenge to us is that we would stay fixed, that our minds would stay upon the gospel and upon this goal of evangelizing the city, our neighbors, the people that pass us by on the streets, the people that we know already, the ones that we love so dearly, and that God would make us to know that he loves them even more than we can imagine. Do you all believe this? So may that be our challenge. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much that you truly do have all authority, and that yours truly is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. We thank you, O Lord, for giving us this time, though things are different tonight even, that we would just be able to worship you regardless and be able to surrender our own hearts unto you and to the mission that you've given us to go forth and to advance your gospel here in downtown Lynchburg and beyond. So Jesus, we ask that we would fall more deeply in love with this glorious gospel of grace as we also grow in our love and our affection for our neighbors that we need. So we ask all this in Christ's holy name.